Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm welcomed again by Scott Stevenson. Hopefully you guys have seen the previous podcast with Scott. If you haven't, I highly recommend you check that one out because it was a really fun chat, really engaging, and we got a great response from it. Uh, We delved into some really interesting topics relating to hypertrophy and some really interesting studies, so I definitely would check that out. I had the pleasure of actually meeting uh, Scott a number of months ago at Body Power, so I'm sure there was a lot of you guys who also bumped into Scott and uh, you know what a great talker he is, but also how friendly and um, just humble and such a nice guy. So I'm really grateful that you've come back on the podcast, Scott. And uh, first of all, how are you doing? How's everything in Florida? I'm, I'm actually funny. I'm actually in Arizona. Oh, you're uh, still on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, kind of. This is the Airbnb that I'm at. Um, they're actually, this is a, in a previous podcast, someone asked about uh, Arizona that just had the, this was an American they had the perspective that uh, it was just all desert, like nothing but rocks and maybe wow. a few cacti spread around. This is actually one of the most biodiverse um, areas of the world where I am now. There's like hundreds of species of birds around here where I used to live. There's like 30 of them, like just in that local little nice. little area. I go out and I see just a massive amount of finches and it's a really beautiful area. There's mountains on either side of the uh, of the city here in tucson so it's it's beautiful so i'm here for this is actually after this i'm heading back to florida still so, nice and warm in arizona i'm not oh. as good at the the geography in the states yeah well arizona i mean it's yeah it's near that it's basically surrounded by desert so it's oh, des- yeah. probably yeah i'll probably move i've got sun behind me and it's creeping up i may move during the podcast to get out of it because it's gonna be i think i heard someone say it's gonna be in the hundreds in fahrenheit wow. yeah so it's gonna get hot yeah, you don't want to burn, so <laughs> that's not yeah, going to help I'm anything. Used to, yeah, but it's going to be hot. I'll be I'll be sweating by the end of the podcast if we go for a while. I imagine. <laughs> so, what I wanted to talk to Scott about today, <clears throat> and some of you may be aware that Scott has recently released a book called um, "Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach," which I think is a really exciting book and something that I think a lot of people. Um, would be excited to kind of hear about and read about and actually use because I mean everyone wants to kind of be their own coach obviously coaching is an expensive thing if you want to get into it Um, and there's some great books out there about the theory um, but oftentimes they lack kind of how do you put that into practice and I think if you're going to put a book out that's going to be your own coach there's going to be so much practical information in there and that's something I wanted to delve into with Scott and I have asked Scott off air kind of I wanted to talk about his favorite chapter or the favorite bits in there and he explained how it's been a three-year endeavor of kind of and I mean your whole life in terms of all the knowledge you've gained so uh, it was a difficult one but I think we did come to a conclusion that it was the kind of decision making and being a critical thinker. Yeah, I've got the book organized. It's funny. One thing you said jumped out at me there is that everyone wants to be their own coach, and that and that's not really true. There are lots of people who just who just don't. This doesn't fit with. Um, I'm getting some people who are asking me about the book, and I just had a message the other night, and um, they're wanting to know. Like they had a very sort of specific question. I could tell from the nature of the question that they're really not. This person was not someone who wanted to dig in and have a, a, a greater understanding. They okay. just want to know, like, you know, where, what do I do exactly? And I, and I shy them away from the book. I said, this yeah, is yeah. not – it's not for you like, because you'll have to – there's always going to be some, some decision-making process to do on your own, um, which I think is where the, why I wrote the book in, in part because there's some value in that um, because that's that, what's what makes the journey so colorful for many, many people. And some people don't want to do that at all. They just that's not their that their bag. They're not their thing. So even though I've I've written this, so I address pretty much just about everything you could run up against. There are some things that I've thought of that I'll add when I come out with another another version of this. And there will always be things yeah. you know on the horizon. Um, but it's not it's, so it's not for everybody. If if you like to learn and like and like to geek out, then you'll love this book. Um, that's so our it, audience. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, I've broken it up. The chapters, there's not that many chapters, really. There's only like seven chapters. But the chapters are, there's a big picture chapter where I have some goals. Um, gosh, one of my, now that, you, now that I think of it, one of my favorite, um, one of the biggest points in the book is goal setting. And this is such a common one. People don't have um, a concrete, specific, measurable um, 
quantifiable goal in mind. And this is it's bodybuilding, so it's about aesthetics. But even when it comes to aesthetics, you can say, you know, Frank Zane had the ideal physique that I want. I had a client years ago who wanted to look like Frank Zane. And we actually did at the end of our time together, he did a photo shoot where he reproduced some Frank Zane photos. Um, there was one like a Frank, like wearing, is actually wearing jeans. He's got his hands in his jeans. He's kind of like doing almost like a sort of hands on hip, most muscular type of thing, shirtless. And this guy recreated it and looked, looked, like exactly like him, of course nice. the face is different, but yeah, so he really achieved his goal. It was very cool. Um, but I've got some goals in there. One of them is like moving up a weight class. Um, and one of the things that people will find when they look in the chapter, this is one of my, I thought this was kind of cool because I've been asked about this several times. So how many people have you known who think, okay, I'm going to go, I want to move up a weight class, which is a substantial jump. We're talking about, you know, 20 pounds or so most of the time, yeah. 22 pounds, maybe 10 kilos. Um, and uh, they end up weighing like two more pounds on stage. Um, when it's all said and done, they gain a bunch of weight. They maybe get heavier, but a lot of it's body fat. So I, I've created a table in there um, based on the idea that you want to be about 4% uh, DEXA on stage. And ba broke it down. And, and the table is fairly complex, but it's easily readable. Where you look at the length of your prep and your starting percentage body fat. And it gives you an idea of how much fat you need to lose each week in order to get to 4% at the end of your prep. So it's like broken down mathematically. So you're not disillusioned. If you get up to 270 pounds and you're 28% body fat and um, then you know how much fat-free mass you have. And you presume – and I've got actually different situations where you lose some fat-free mass, where you gain some or where it stays the same. Because some people will do that. They yeah. will basically – someone, especially if they're enhanced, they may actually recomp during their, their pre-contest so they actually gain some muscle mass. Most people can't count on that happening. So you're not disillusioned. Like, oh my – I'm 28% body fat. I'm going to have to lose like 2.3 pounds of fat a week every week to get into shape and hardly any muscle mass – it's just there's no way it's going to happen. It can't be done. Or I've only got at this percentage body fat and this weight, I've only got enough fat-free mass to be four percent at you know ten pounds below the weight class, or eighteen pounds. Below, I mean, I'll barely be above the weight limit. Maybe I don't even try to move up a weight class this time because I just I'm just not there. So like that that's that sort of thing. That's the thing that a or a coach could maybe sort of give you a subjective evaluation of like, I don't think it's going to happen. Or they could actually instruct you to go out and, and get the body comp measurements done. And one of the things I've had people do over the years too is you can't, you don't want to get a DEXA done every week. It's going to be pricey to do that. Um, but I've got a basic method. And this is body comp. You, you can't measure someone's body fat directly unless you kill them first. Unless you're going to do a chemical analysis, only way you can do that, I can tell you once, and that'd be the last time we'd yeah. ever measure because we put you through the meat grinder and separate the fat and everything else. So, but you can do a DEXA and then find your own skin folds, someplace that you can measure repeatedly and reliably where you hold body fat, and then derive your own estimation equation using your DEXA as your validity measure, which is not a bad one to choose. Mm -hmm. So you go and you get like a couple weeks after your, your contest, let's say when your water levels have evened out and you go and you get a DEXA done, you measure those sites and you're at 6% and your skin folds are 20 millimeters. And then a few months later, you're at 11% and now you're at 40 millimeters and then you go to um, 15% and now you're at 60 millimeters. Now you have a line of best fit that you can draw. <clears throat> so when you're in between and if you start dieting down, <clears throat> of course, your fat-free mass will change. And whoop, it's not a perfect way to do this. But then you know, okay, well, now I'm at 30 millimeters. That's somewhere between 20 and 40. That's going to put me between that 11% and that 6% that I was at. And you have a pretty good idea of where you are. And now you can actually do a quantifiable um, uh, measurement of your body fat to see if you're on track to meet that goal that you set for self. And if you're truly 4% on a DEX, then you're shredded. That's, there's pretty much no doubt about that. You're, you're in shape or close enough. So like that's one of the goals that I, I thought was kind of cool. And that's so useful for people because they just 
they don't know where they're going. I, I've had uh, there's a, a guy who's a personal trainer at a gym that I owned years ago, actually here in Tucson, and uh, he would come to me with a question. And he, he would always have a different question, kind of a different idea, and he's always heading it off in different directions. He never could like nail down his goals. And I said, you need to sit out, sit down, and figure out what your destination is. It's like you're walking out in the parking lot of the shopping center. And you're not sure where you, where you want to go. And first you want to go to the restaurant and then you want to go to the luggage store and then you want to go to, to this store. And like you're just like wandering around in the circle in circles. And he would every couple of months, he'd have like a, sort of a, get a wild here and have like a new idea of what he wanted to do with his physique. I want to get really shredded or I want to make my calves huge or whatever it is you do. And I say, sounds to me like you're just wandering around in that parking lot. I just tell him that. And he's yeah. like, ah, you're right. OK, sorry. <laughs> I just give him that analogy and so many people are, are like that and that's that orientation just that grounding of goal setting I've got an entire intake form yep. um, that big picture where you, which I which I've used with people um, that people can use to create their own check-ins they can use even if they're in a prep and they figure like let's say I'm not going to make I'm not going to be as large as I think I, I need to be maybe I, I do I fill that out again this personal bodybuilding inventory what I call it, and decide, okay, well, I'm not losing fat like I need to. I'm going to have to change my show. Right. And yeah. Because you fill it all out, and like literally just in doing that, you have you have basically done the assessment that a coach would do for you. Yes. So the, so the tools are there. The coaches say, so the coach says, fill this out. Okay. And you fill it out, and by doing that, you figured out pro most of what the coach is going to tell you because you know all that from having mm -hmm. done the form because you, 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 you set the goals You've answered all the questions or you can just – I'm plugging myself a little bit. Or you can just buy the book and fill out the form yourself and don't pay the coach yeah. 100 bucks for that week to hand you the form and read it and tell you what you wrote. So that's a that, – that big picture is a really important one um, I think. So Yeah, I think – I mean your initial point on uh, me saying everyone wants to be their own coach, um, mm. I think you're completely right in that. No, everyone doesn't want to be in – I mean I coach yeah. – coaches they, they coach other people and they don't want to be their own coach so even right. me saying that i know that it, it's not true and there are people yeah. that just they're doers and they don't really want to think about it and they don't mm -hmm. do well thinking about it there are then like myself i and i believe you coach yourself i like thinking about these things and it kind of i learn more about myself and be able to apply it to my clients via coaching myself so if there are people that maybe like that idea. I think coaching yourself is a great learning tool um, in that respect. And you get to try things out yourself and potentially apply it then to your clients and things like this, which is always fascinating. Um, but the, the, the thing you talked about there in planning, that for me is one of my biggest roles as a coach is planning for my clients, especially bodybuilding clients, planning backwards from shows. So we have a realistic timeline. So the fact you've got that in the book, I think is actually priceless because Whilst it might seem simple to maybe some of the listeners who coach others and do this, I think a lot of people don't think about it enough in time. And I've certainly seen people who are like, yeah, 200 pounds plus, and they think their stage weight is going to be like 180 pounds. In reality, they're down at the 160s and they had like tons more fat mass that they don't realize, especially first time competitors. So even if you aren't going to coach yourself, it's probably just a valuable insight into kind of how it might be and kind of give you ideas of what your coach is going to do. Yeah. I, I, in the promo video I put together for the, for the book, I, I refer to it as a, a kind of a map or a compass. So sort of like you're on your path, you're making a journey and you can, you can pay a coach to sit there next to you in the car and tell you where to make the turns, or you can follow the horizon and refer to the map and the compass and, and then navigate on your own nice. and get there in that way. And that's a totally different journey than just cruising along and someone just says, you know, take a left, take a right, take this highway. You know, traveling people, I don't know how many of your listeners, I've, I've been traveling around now a lot because I drove from Florida out here and I was up in Vegas for the Olympia and come back. Um, and I kind of know the route and, you know, I have a GPS there, of course, but it's a totally different thing. I mean, back in the day, I'd be driving at night and I had like this big map and I'm trying mm -hmm. not to kill myself and run off the road trying to like, look at the map that that's a different experience than just having the GPS where, you know, we are all the time. Um, and we lose, this is a sort of a side topic, but there's, there's actually people who study this is like we, we lose our certain cognitive abilities yeah. when we rely on, um, 
conceptual inventions. Like, for instance, if people people can't do mathematics in their head anymore because you ha- we have calculators, oh, yeah. you know, and we have we have we have GPSs that tell us where to go places, and you forget how to like navigate streets. Like you, you forget, like okay, like the mountains are to the north. The Catalina Mountains here in, in Tucson are to the north. The sun sets in the west. You know, you can kind of figure out where you. This is a pretty grid-like city. You can probably you can figure out where you're going pretty easily, but you lose that sense of direction because we start to rely upon things. Yes. And I think there's a sense of self that can be gained in coaching yourself that you 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 don't obtain when you have a coach telling you where to go. Um, that's not to say that you know it's. At certain cases, like when you're a few weeks out and you want to optimize your performance and you know you just you've tried before, you failed, you didn't make good decisions, you can't rely upon a coach yeah. maybe to help. That's where a lot of people do that. I mean, you don't want to be silly if you're like literally you have no night vision um, and you can't see the road for Jack, then you're going to maybe need to rely, turn the GPS on so you don't get lost and run off in a ditch, hurt yourself you know, or do something silly like people yeah. take a bunch of diuretics or what have you. There's literally dangers that can happen in those last few weeks that you'd want to avoid just out of common sense. But I've always found that there's, there's, a, there's a great deal of value to be gained in being in those stressful situations and figuring out a way to, to come through them on your own. And that's yeah. part of the book. I definitely think there's at least something worth trying um, because some people, I mean, they might flourish in that situation and other people, like you said, they're going to be their worst, their own worst enemy and they're going to end up making bad decisions um, or the wrong decisions in those moments. But you never know unless you try it. Um, And it's an interesting experience to go through. And I've certainly had people who I'm glad that I've been there to help them through those so that they don't make the silly mistakes. But there's other people who they basically are already suggesting my next move and it's exactly what I think it should be. And sometimes that's all people need, their confirmation. And I guess that's something the book can also probably provide as well. Yeah, I, I try whenever I am coaching people to, it's a partnership. Yeah. Not a dictatorship. <laughs> like like some coaches yeah. make it and people will balk at that. So um you know, we have to realize that they hired me for a reason. And, um, you know, if, if they're really, I've only, I only fire someone. I've had people who do my, I have a peak week protocol in the book, which a lot of people are really big on because I don't use pharmaceutical diuretics and I don't think you need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I know you don't need to. There's a couple situations where people, where it won't work when people are super stressed or they've been using diuretics for like for blood pressure issues or they're just massive caffeine users and their water balance is thrown off. But, I will always sort of um, try to get people to to figure out as much as they possibly can, and then and then I'll say, okay, that's that's what I would have done too. That's awesome. You yeah. you got this down, and and boost their confidence in that way, and um, and of course realize that you know, but it really happens if you know that you hired me for a reason. So you know, unless you just have to do it your way, you you can do that. It's always up to them. They can fire me, of course. Yeah. But I'm also, I'm also the coach and that's why you, why you took me on. But rarely the people that I bring in, I never, I don't, I don't ever have like those sorts of arguments. It's really always been a a positive thing where, where I'm just kind of telling them what they probably already know Mm -hmm. most of the time, which is what, how most coaches could be. Unfortunately, this is another bad side tangent. I've seen, I saw this like literally, I was, I was a personal trainer in the early nineties and, um, when I was in graduate school and there was a, the guy that was ran the personal training company, he was a, a master at making his clients. He was like a drug dealer. Right. They had, they had no idea what they're doing or why they were doing it. He, he, um, like totally had control of their diet and he managed to find a clientele that would completely like they, they had the addictive genes for following him as a leader. And it was it was it was sort of sickening because mm-hmm. I had to meet some of his clients a couple times, and I talked to them, and they were like these were people who had um, eating disorders, wow, okay. um, and they were using him sort of as a substitute. Yeah. They 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 needed some clinical help, and um, so anyway, the, the coaching can be can run really really badly as well, and you know know I I'm sure many many horror stories. So this was this whole book is in part. Um, not that this is a substitute for someone who needs clinical psychiatric care, but this is a, a, a book to give people the option to say, hey, you know, you don't have to have a coach. Mm-hmm. You can do this on your own. You really can, you know. 
Yeah, I think it's it's really scary when the coach does become a dictator and they don't provide answers. And you've probably had it, Scott, where you'll get people asking you questions that they have a coach and should be able to ask their coach yet aren't a position where they feel able to. And that's always the worst as another coach kind of answering another coach's questions. You just feel completely like this is just completely wrong. You shouldn't be with this person if you can't ask them a question. Um, yeah. And it happens far too often. I, I tell you what, I mean, and I'd hope for this and I, I didn't even have to hope for it cause I kind of knew it was going to happen. Um, I'm running into people with that in that same scenario, and now I can just give them my book. Yeah, I, I've literally I've run into some people who I, I, I'm people I didn't even know. I just this is like at the Olympia, for instance, that sort of thing, and uh, and I'm like they're in a bad situation. They're in a situation where they're really doubting their coach. They feel like their health is maybe at risk, and I could just say, hey, here you go. It's like you know, it's like when you you run into a homeless person and you'd realize that they're they really are in a bad way they're not going to go and spend the money on drugs or whatever and and you got the money to give it to them here you go yeah now i've got a free pdf <laughs> i can just say give me your you got an email good coach yourself and 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 it's really um it's really a beautiful thing to have been, been able to do that for a few people yeah. over the last month or so so yeah I, I try to stay i always say you know one chef in the in the kitchen you know yeah. one chief in the tribe and you'd have to do what your coach says, but they'll always say, you know, hey, there's nothing wrong with finding another coach. No. Yeah. Um, Especially educating yourself. There's nothing wrong with doing that either. No, no, I think, you know, that's how it should be. It's funny because, gosh, I mean, we had we had people, guys like Vince Garanda, you know, and Joe Weider, and then the Chad Nichols was kind of the first guy to become like a big coach. and. Mm -hmm. Um, and really coach people and like, but that was like only the pros would do that. Like these are the higher level guys. And the perception was like, these guys are doing things that no, no one else is doing. Yeah. So they kind of need the coach and now everyone needs a coach. Like, everyone's got to have one. Yeah. It's, I run into people at the gym and, and, um, this is back and forth there. One day I ran in and like literally in the, I had three guys in one day say they're thinking about doing their first show and they want to do it, want to coach. And, um, like there was not even like the, the first inkling of a, of a thought that they would do it without a coach mm -hmm. that they could do that. And like, they don't have a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, hey, just, just go try it out. You may hate this, you know, yeah. you may not like it at all. So yeah, I, I think we, we, it's a pendulum, you know, and hopefully, um, hopefully maybe the book will push the pendulum back the other direction a little bit. Yeah. I think the people seem to think it's kind of like a, a rite of passage and we may be selling ourselves out of coaching people, but there's always enough people to, to warrant um, having oh. coaches. But there's so much information out there now. And a lot of people, if they just, I mean, a lot of people don't have the time or have the, the will or the effort to look into these things. Um, but some people do and they just don't think about it. And I think what something your book might highlight is that I think a lot of people think there are secrets that coaches have that they're providing clients. And whilst there might be some little differences between different coaches and their approaches, everything tends to come back to those fundamental basics. And there's not really a magic that some coaches apply to some of their clients to get them into amazing shape or condition and results. Generally, if you know a coach is good, they're sound, they have good information. Scott, you put out amazing information. It's obvious you know what you're doing. Uh, like they're not going to be doing anything different to what another coach could be doing. And so I think that is part of the problem. People think there's kind of secrets held. And I think part of the, the thing your book will do is help educate and inform. They're not secrets. These are kind of known things, but you might not understand it as well as what you think you do or how you thought you did. Yeah. It's I've unpacked Pandora's box. Yeah. It's, like, here, here, it's all in. Here you go. It's all here like everything's there it's it's for it's for you we i mean it's a smart there's there's i mean i think of this sometimes i i my my brain will go back to an evolutionary biological perspective on this and it's smart to figure out the easiest way to to get from point a to point b use yeah. the least amount of energy um find the magic bullet find the quickest way find the smartest way um you know don't do extra work unnecessarily so we we tend to our our brains tend to want to do that so we want to look for those sort of the those secrets the shortcut yeah um and plus now there is so much information and you gave me kind of a, a segue into what we're going to talk about that it's i've always likened it to like you you like you open the the 
like you go into the library and you're expecting, you know, see some some shelves, you know, and not something too big, and you open it up and you're like, holy <laughs> crap, you know, some of those ones you got to climb the ladder and slide across, and it's multiple stories and like there's elevators and like there's you know, the map it looks like a mall, map to the mall. It's like, oh my god, I don't even want to be. I got to go all the way over there just to figure this out. There's so much in between that's mind-boggling. Um, one of the things that I, I did, uh, the last chapter is, um, called the critical thinking bodybuilder. And this is, a, this is, this may be like one of the most important things people to do is learn how to be a critical consumer. And that applies to coach, criticize your coach. I've always, I always think of myself as a coach, as a servant of the person that I'm coaching. So literally, um, I'm there just like a waiter or a waitress or, you know, a cab driver or what have you. I'm there to serve them. Um, and their needs always come first. I, I try to, there are some people that I've known that have become friends that I help that I kind of violate this with, but I kind of know what that's going to be like. But most other, almost all, really all, almost all of my clients, I don't tell them about my, if they ask, of course, I'll answer, but like my, my personal woes or anything that's going on with me, unless I can be sure that that self-disclosure is something that will help them. Yeah. Whether or not I had a shitty day is has has no bearing upon um, what I'm doing with them. I want to make sure they have the best day they, they can. That's why they pay me. Yeah. That's that. And and uh, uh, you can be a critical consumer of coaching or of bodybuilding information, um, and criticize your coach too, and ask your coach those questions. And some coaches will just say, in my opinion, the coaches just say, you know, do it this way because I said so. Like. Uh, yeah, you know, like that's, that's, it doesn't fly. Some people will, will pick, they, they will like that. I mean, that's probably a family of origin thing. Maybe they grew up in a family where that's how their parents were or whatever. Wow. And they're, they're sort of neurologically wired to re be responsive to that. Um, but otherwise you can't actually, and I, and I go through some ways you can't actually, um, uh, dig into, for instance, scientific information, even if you're not scientifically trained. And I, I try to reduce people's anxiety with the idea that literally you can, there's so much available on scholar.google.com, for instance. Um, you can get so many free papers. I mean, back when I was in graduate school, you had to actually go to the shelves and yeah. pull, the, pull the actual volumes and find them and photocopy them. I'd, like I remember it would be like, you know, the library closes at 1 a.m. And I could better be bound out the photocopier by midnight or I'm not going <laughs> to photocopy and then I'll be pissed because I'm gonna I'll have to go find it again and bring it back out and then go photocopy it later. Now you can download it and you have it in five seconds. And some people still don't even want to want to go to that. Yeah. But you, but you can figure things out. You you can dig into a study and say, okay, someone says that um, uh, creatine does does this to skeletal muscle, and you just literally you can just copy the whole reference, paste it into Google. It'll come up 99 percent of the time. And you can get those studies, and I, hopefully a lot of times you can read past the abstract. Yeah. You can get those. If you look around, Google Scholar has many of them. And you can understand what's in there. It's written, most of them are in the English language. You can actually use Google Translate if you want and translate things. I've done that before many a time. Um, and you can dig in and say, okay, so what, what was the species? How long do they apply this? Um, like another advancing is converting like species doses, dosages, humans to, to, to rodents or, or backwards. And uh, actually it's um, 16 and 8 percent for, for rats and mice for what people right. – what it's worth. Yeah. Like that's a common – you can remember those two numbers. You're good to go. Um, so uh, – but you can, you can look and use co literally common sense to yeah. see okay, how – does this make, make sense? How applicable is this to me? Um, and like, for instance, there's a, a, a big, maybe you even are going to get him on to talk about it, or maybe you've talked about it. There's a, Brad Schoenfeld did a study on, on volume and yeah. muscle growth. Yeah. And there's, there was a tremendous amount of volume that they were doing. Yeah. And if you look at the number, it was like 45 sets a yeah. week or something like that for a muscle group. And, and I know personally, that's so far beyond the way I like to train and the way I train the way I, there's just no way I, I would, I would just, I would be just. Maybe a, a, just a quivering mess after <laughs> so that just wouldn't happen. So um, it, it'd be interesting to know. So I had some other questions about that that study, and you know maybe we another podcast something like that we can get into it. But just simply looking at that study and say, it's, it, it, people would would say, well, the more volume, the better. Yeah. Sort of 
to suggest, not in terms of strength, but in terms of muscle growth. But from a, a, a practical applicability standpoint, oh my gosh, like, is that really going to work? Could you really do that? What was going on here that allowed it to happen? It brings a lot of questions. I yeah. think people have been questioning, like, how can, what was actually going on there? Um, the first thought that came to mind, I think they waited 48 to 72 hours when they did their, their um, muscle, I think they used ultrasound muscle size measurements. There could have been some massive swelling that was going yeah. on in the group. Um, you know, I, I looked to see if they've, I've looked, I've dug around, I haven't found anything in the literature. I spent a little bit of time trying to figure out if someone's looked at a muscle soreness and size and watched the, the rate of decay of the inflammation because you can increase a muscle. Um, I know this from MRI, you can increase a muscle's cross-sectional area by 20% um, just with a muscle soreness protocol. And, and that's that's more extensive in terms of whole muscle cross-sectional area than I don't think I've maybe ever seen in a human resistance training study. 20% is gigantic. Yeah. I had uh, in my dissertation, we did a unilateral leg training um, study with e-STEM and uh, um, uh, isokinetic dynamometer. And we could basically, from the previous work that had been done, you can increase muscle size about at twice the normal rate that resistance exercise would bring it about. Because you're overriding neural inhibition with this Kincom dynamometer, you, you do concentrics, and then it would force you into an eccentric, so tremendous overload. And one of the subjects had a 21% increase in quad cross section. I don't know even which one. I could probably go and look and see. But many of them, when that one, we only trained the one quad. The other quad they continued to train as best as they could to match their previous training regimen. But many of them were like, there's one couple of guys like they weren't wearing shorts anymore. This was in Georgia. So it was kind of warm. It was, you know, some of it because they felt they looked like a fiddler crab with one giant leg and the other <laughs> leg smaller. They were so imbalanced, and that was like, you know, in in the creatine group it was like a ten or twelve percent increase in cross sectional area. One guy had a twenty one percent. He just he didn't like how his legs looked because they were so imbalanced. Oh, I bet, yeah. <laughs> so you can create massive swelling, and anyway, that's it makes me wonder about that study. But you can ask yourself all those questions. Maybe you don't know about the twenty percent increase in cross sectional area, but you can think to yourself, how in the hell would I fit in forty five sets in a week, or yeah. whatever the number was? I can't remember exactly if that was the correct correct number. Um, would that is is this applicable to me? The way I like to train, what I do in my training, and that's just common sense. Yeah. You know, is was this done in mice? Um, what do they do to increase muscle size? Um, how long was it applied for? Was it an acute study or a chronic study? There's a lot of things that people could do. So I go through that in the um, in that chapter, mm-hmm. critical thinking bodybuilder. And I, I also, and I, I have this conversation a good a good bit with people um, is understanding that just just having the perspective that there are different ways of knowing is really, really important. Yeah. You can know from authority, which is how many of us rely <coughs> upon, um, rely upon for a source of information because so-and-so said that. Yeah. I, I, I cringe every time I hear someone say, well, because Dr. Scott said that. It's like, no, that's not yeah. my message. Not at all. If anything, the authorities have a greater onus of responsibility for justifying and substantiating mm-hmm. their claims. They should be able to produce some references or a really tight, articulate justification for a statement they make. Um, have some some really good reason that makes sense to you right off the bat. Um, somebody uh, somebody asked me um, in regards to the Peak Week protocol in the book. I put um, I'm I'm taking some of the infographics in the book and putting it on my Instagram. Cool. And I put one up about a week or so ago. Uh, I've got a, a Peak Week overview sheet. Um, and that basically outlines kind of how the whole week transpires for those people who want to use a peak week if you actually need to. And, and the, it's just sort of a, as an eye, I, I'm not a great marketer, but I try to do my best. And I, I, I put some flashing text on there is that pharmaceutical diuretics are not needed to dry out. And on Facebook, I can't remember who it was. Somebody asked me the question. He said, um, uh, he's like, well, because I use, I use caffeine and I use herbal diuretics. Um, and he said, he said, well, a, you know, a drug's a drug. Um, this is just semantics here. You're still using drugs. And I, and I, and my response, and I guess this is when I thought about a good bit, that was like a, maybe a two sentence sort of semi critique, but a good mm-hmm. question. And my response was like the whole page <laughs> long. 
because I thought this through. Yeah. And and that was a good question, and he deserved a good answer, without a doubt. And I so I took the time to provide it for yep. him, you know. And I said, well, you know, anti-inflammatories and opiates and alcohol and other drugs can all reduce pain, but they have different pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So they're not all the same. Drugs may all be drugs, but they act in very different ways, and that holds true for for caffeine versus someone who's going to use diazide or HCTZ or whatever it may be. Um, so uh, that's like one of the things I have in the book are so, sort of uh, some checklists that you can run through in your mind when someone um, has a whole lot of scientific uh, jargon that maybe doesn't make sense to you. And especially when they're asked for some scientific justification or a re like maybe even a, just a textbook or something and they don't come up with it, um, then that's a red flag yeah. in my opinion. They should be able to come up with that. And, re and really, I hark on this maybe because I'm kind of a stickler for this, but in, in academia, which is what you sort of presume was the uh, sort of the learning circle for people who are presenting highly scientific information, that they learn that in academia – um, the standard is that if you make a claim of, of a scientific notion, then you have some sort of a citation and a reference that's, that, so to provide that. And I've got like over 2,400 references in this book, like, wow. like close to 100 pages. Yeah, so it's just loaded. Yeah, they're just all in the <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I did that to make it a resource. So you read through and like you may have, you know, an, I don't know what it is. I could probably figure out how many sentences are in the book. I could do a word count and a sentence count. And, but, you know, in, in some sections you can see like a paragraph and there's, you know, maybe just on one page 50 references. And mm -hmm. you can click the citation number and it takes you to the citation, the reference at the end in the, in the book. And in academia, if you um, actually say something and don't put a citation – there, that that can be uh, an academic integrity violation. Um, and a lot of times, people you'll see like you'll see like things that are written, and they'll have like a number reference, and then they'll just have like a list of references with no numbers next to them. It's like, well, how did you hodgepodge this together? Like, was this a copy and paste from for somewhere, or they or, or this is actually an academic? You can get you can get charged for this if you write a piece. And then just put some references at the end with no citations in the text referring to those references. That's an academic right. integrity violation because it suggests you called upon those resources um, to provide information, but you're not properly citing them. You're yeah. not giving them credit. You're, it's, it's an intellectual theft. You're basically saying, you know, it's like walking in the room and, and you and you see like. You know that it's this is this the bedding is from Bed Bath and Beyond. It's a store here in the states. I don't know if you guys have it there from Bed Bath and Beyond. And you need to provide like where's your receipt? Yeah. Like you know, there's the bag, and there's the stuff from Bed Bath and Beyond, but there's no receipt in there. Like you have to, like you stole it. So if you're going to put a reference at the end of your paper, there should be a citation, which is basically the equivalent of your receipt. Yeah. Say, hey, this is you know I paid for this. This is where this fits. Like. But people see like, oh, there's a bunch of references. It must be good. It's scientific. It's like, no, no, no. That's actually a big no-no. Yeah. Um, for the reason I just explained. So I, there's, I know, I go through a number of things. The ways of knowing, authority. You can know from your intuition. You can know from your experience. In the trenches, you yeah. can know because that's how everyone else does it. Um, we always have to trust the authority to some degree. Um, and I have to believe when I go to those scientific references that. Those people didn't falsify their data. Yeah. They just make it all up. I have to trust them, and that and that does happen too. Yeah. And and uh, it's interesting. Like there have been, uh, you probably know some of these. There have been some people in the last few years that kind of like uh, were sort of shunned from academia because they were some of the things they came up with mm -hmm. just didn't make sense, and they got called out. They've actually been. It's been cool to see some researchers call out papers yeah. think that this doesn't make sense. Um, and on the other hand, when you've gone in, like dug in deep to uh, the scientific research, you start to know which labs do good stuff, mm -hmm. know who do, who does things like like Stu Phillips is someone who's known really well yeah. for, for protein metabolism. Um, there's a guy named uh, John Halazi um, who is like he's he's um, one of the sort of founding fathers of exercise 
physiology. He was the first person to document that exercises increases mitochondrial density and skeletal muscle. Cool. Yeah, back in like 1967, it's one of those papers you kind of had to have memorized. You know, cytochrome C and succinate dehydrogenase, you have to know all this stuff. And one of the things, Halazi, like that was pretty cool is that he had one technician that did all of his biochemistry work in his lab for, I think, practically his entire career. So it's not like... You know, you got like one year you got this graduate student who's real OCD and he like he does everything in triplicate or she does everything in triplicate. And, you know, it's dead on and they're making sure that, you know, they're they're when they're using standards, they refresh their standards. And then the next year you get someone who's just a little bit like, oh, I just want to get through this shit. Yeah. That's teach at a community college. I don't care about the research. Um, he had the same person doing that stuff every single year for decades. So you knew the 1967 paper. It was this, you'll see the same person who was the tech in the, as a 19, 1987 paper or, or 2007 paper. The person was there like for his entire career. Like that was like, holy, that's why he's so esteemed because of the, that sort of um, consistency yeah. in his lab. So people who are reading the research won't necessarily know that, but you can, you can see what people, what other things people have done. You know, you can, you can dig around and say, who's this guy? I keep on seeing this Phillips guy. He's actually on Facebook. Oh shit. There he is on this podcast. So he's been on Vicky Mercedes podcast a few yeah. times. Um, you can dig around and find those. You can you can vet people, vet them, vet the hell out of them. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of fun to do. You know, you can be a little bit of a voyeur and like you know, search people around, search out people on online and and do that. So those are some of the things I have in that chapter on being the critical thinking bodybuilder that I hopefully is is eye opening mm-hmm. to people to realize that, and it's okay to know. It's okay to know from experience, you know, that something works. Yeah. Like, like for you, um, I talk a lot about biological inter-individuality, about the idea that some people are non-responders. Yeah. Um, I have a huge section of that, about that on drugs, PEDs. I don't tell people how to use PEDs. A lot of people are, like, disappointed that I'm, I haven't come yeah. up with the magical drug protocol. But I talk about biological individuality, and that applies, too. Yeah. If you know that there's no way in hell that you can recover from 45 sets in a week. Um, and that you're going to, you just, you've tried the high volume thing. You know, your brain doesn't let you train anything other than just full throttle and you can't get away with more than eight or 10 sets a week. Then that's you. And that's how you are. And you, you may be at one end of the recovery spectrum and that's totally normal. And just because the means of some studies suggest that, 15% 15% sets per week or 20 sets per week or 45 sets per week gives you greater muscle growth. Um, if you know better, then you know better. Um, and that's an okay way of knowing. Yeah. You know? And then there's the placebo effect <laughs> as well, oh, yeah. which I'll talk about too. So, yeah. I think that chapter in itself, I mean, it sounds fascinating, but I think it's, like you said, you talked about kind of a bodybuilding toolkit. I think just as someone who is interested in their own kind of a coaching toolkit, that's something that's really important for your own, what you're doing. And um, I think from my perspective, something I often do is like with studies, sometimes it can be difficult to delve into individual studies and find the time when maybe you're not a researcher. And um, I talk to experts, but obviously um, meta-analyses I find and research reviews are incredible and they're virtually always open access and they're a gold mine in themselves. Yeah. It's interesting to go and look at those because they're done. A lot of times you'll see multiple meta-analyses that have been done on topics over the course of the years. And I, like, I have a pretty big section on fat, um, fat intake, fat as a micro, a macronutrient. Um, and sometimes the reviews and as more, more research comes out, the reviews will come to different conclusions based on the current state of affairs. Uh, like one of the, from that fifth chapter, one of the things I point out, um, is that the 1977 ACSM, um, position stand on PEDs on steroids suggested that they don't have any effect on wow. <laughs> strength and growth. <clears throat> and, but, but, but the way that's couched was based something like based on the currently available body of scientific research this is what our conclusion is and then in 87 they came up with another one and there were more data that allowed them to come to a different conclusion so all all they were doing was basing their conclusion on the data they had in front of them 
And so it wasn't as if like all of a sudden they were stupid and they got smart or they were, they actually made a correct assessment yeah. in each time, but you have to realize what it is they said. And that comes from reading that and looking at the time. So like somebody, if you go to Google scholar, you might put in like review on, um, fat intake and cardiovascular disease, something like that. And you may find like a, a, a highly cited paper from the eighties. And if you just rely on that was, I also go with that one. It's at the top of the list, right? It must be the best one that may, that may not take into account other data that have been since collected mm-hmm. on that topic. So look around, even the reviews, you know, people, it's a great, that's a great way to get a good publication is to do a review, you know? So again, it's a publisher parish. You have to understand that as well. It's a publisher parish world. So those guys have to put out yeah. information. Um, this is an, another topic, but, and it's a valid criticism is, is, um, conflict of interest. Right. Yeah. You know, look and see like is, you know, who paid for the study? Um, are they going to publish stuff? Is, are things going to get out into the publication that show no effect of a given product? No, probably mm-hmm. not. Like, because they, and I've been involved with some of this for companies when I was back in my days of academia, they will, they, they pay, you get good money, money to fund students and further research in the lab, but the company holds the data. Yeah. So it's, it's basically private, um, sort of situation where they hold the data and, um, there was one, I've talked about this before. Um, there's some dastardly stuff that can go on in that world. There was a product that we did a test for several tests for And the experimental design was really, really poor. It was awful. It really wasn't testing what they wanted to put as a, a label claim. And, uh, we did a series of tests, like a whole a boatload of different types of pain measurements, um, repeatedly. And when you do repeated measurements, you increase your chance for sort of a false positive error. Right. Um, so you have to uh, adjust your the probability that you're using, statistically speaking, and there's various ways to do that that are appropriate to the situation. So, uh, you know, if you do one test, you might, you know, say, well, you know, if, if this is likely to happen, given all of our uh, all of our assumptions of statistics, normal distribution, all that kind of stuff, um, less than one time out of 20, 5%, P of point of less than 0.05, then we're going to say there's a significant effect. Well, but if I test, do a couple tests, I might have to cut that in half. That's a simple way to, so now I have, now I'm going to have to go with, because you're just, the more times you test, if you test a hundred times, you're going to find five out of a hundred. Yeah. So, the, so you have to make an adjustment there. Well, this particular study with this company, they just ran every comparison they could. <laughs> They compared like we had made like five different time points. They compared one versus two, one versus three, one versus four, two versus three, all of them for all the measurements. And there were hundreds of comparisons and they found like, you know, five out of a hundred. And then they drew their conclusions from that without wow. adjusting statistically. It's like, oh my, it was, and I have the, there's a book, How to Lie with Statistics, kind of a classic. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I cite that in, in the, in the chapter five of the book and you can, so you can dig into that, but there's a lot of ways to do that. This was just flat out misuse of statistics. Mm-hmm. You can also just um, sort of decide because it all all comes down to you to some degree. I mean, a lot of these things are they're they're really um, uh, somewhat arbitrary. Like that five percent rule. That's that I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly what the origin of that. That's sort of a, that was an arbitrary choice that was made for one particular scientific situation that's just stuck. And some people use a point of point of P of point oh one yeah. sometimes, but it just stuck. So I, I cover practical versus statistical significance. Yeah. And that's that's huge. That's mm-hmm. probably the, if I could impress upon that and external validity. But if I could impress upon anyone the idea of practical versus statistical significance, who's just going to like who wants to ha- be able to like have a feel for what the scientific research tells them, that would be it. Because you can go and, um, for instance, in epidemiological studies where they have masses of people, they have thousands of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of subjects, you can find differences in groups that give you a, a P less than 0.05 all the time easily. But it might be like a 0.2% difference. Which doesn't make like, for instance, a difference in cancer rate or who knows what, mm-hmm. which is an important thing to measure, 
But if it's 0.2% or 0.4%, that may have no practical meaning for you, given all the other things yeah. that can influence your cancer rate. So whether you know your skin color, let's say, is, is, is something that has to do with that. Well, look at all the other things that have a much more practical, meaningful statistical significance. And that only comes from a lot of times reading past the abstract or sometimes just reading the abstract. But sometimes it's gobbledygook. You know, sometimes like like you have all these confidence intervals and relative risk rates and this, it gets very confusing. But most of the time, if you can get a study and open up the full PDF or EPUB or whatever it is and look at the data, you'll find something that makes like, oh, my gosh, like these. So the red dots are this group and the black. They look, they're identical. Like, I don't see much. There's no I don't see any practical value in this in this difference here. So you can make that call, at least for yourself. If you're unsure, of course, ask someone who's a scientist. Yeah. But you can really assess a lot of that on your own as long as you take the time to download those things and you know express your curiosity. So that's super important, especially when people start throwing science. Because people will use science as a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, I'm sure you know this. Yeah. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think a lot of the audience will know that people use it inappropriately. And I think something I've definitely found valuable is – like people like yourself, Scott, and lots of the people that I've interviewed on the podcast, they are critical thinkers. They're, they're true scientists. They don't have dogma that they follow. They're following the science and where that's taken them. And the best people I find, again, like yourself, Scott, are people that take the research and kind of their own experience and take the two combined, kind of that evidence-based practice that everyone kind of talks about. And that gives kind of the best results because like you said, and something I really wanted to point out to the listeners was we all do things and we all experience things and those really matter because especially for bodybuilding individualization is quite a big deal there's ranges always to studies the means of what get represented so you might be like you said that person that responds really great to low volume or you might be that person that needs that higher volume and you are the person that you're going to experiment and try and see how you do and don't just listen to like one cherry pick study that says you have to do 45 sets say and kind of yeah. have to think about what you're actually doing, what's practical and what's working for you. So I thought that was really well uh, put. And that is a wrap for part one with Dr. Scott Stevenson. So many insights and takeaways to take from such a clever man about all things bodybuilding. You can look forward to part two in future. Cheers guys and revive stronger.